Hidden Gems, episode 39, the one with John Gets Games. Welcome to Hidden Gems, a board game podcast where we review unusual, forgotten, and underappreciated board games. We're your hosts. My name is Chris. I'm Jason. I'm Cameron. And I'm John. Hey. <laughs> Welcome, John. Welcome Thanks to the show. Me on. Yeah. So glad to have you here, man. Since this is your first time on the show, we're always excited to meet new people and learn about how they got into this hobby. Tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us a little bit about your YouTube channel and how you got into that. Okay. I mean, it's hard to keep brief with these kind of things, but (laughs) first of all, thank you for having me on. This is really exciting. I've listened to literally every Hidden Gems podcast that you put out. It's amazing. (laughs) Thank you. It is amazing. Well, I mean, primarily because I don't listen to many other board game podcasts because I feel like I'm so down the rabbit hole that I know a lot of what people talk about. And then I found your podcast and you talk about games that I've never even heard of before, which was unusual for me. So it's, <laughs> Love it. it's really fun to finally be here. Yeah. So I started really getting into board games around 2008. Settlers of Catan was my gateway game, so to speak. I mean, I As played games when I was a kid. I still have my Can't Stop. Or I say my, my mom's can't stop that she bought me when I was like seven years old and ah, I stole cool. from her cabinet. So that's in our collection. So I have some games from my childhood, but I became obsessed with video games for most of my childhood and whatnot. And it wasn't until I was in my late 20s that I went to a, a random party and somebody asked me if I've ever played Settlers Catan. I said no. And uh, that changed the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So yeah, board games have been my primary hobby for about 14, 15 years now. And yeah, about eight and a half years ago, I started a YouTube channel called John Gets Games. And I did it on a complete whim. I was genuinely just bored. My old job was event production, and I (laughs) would frequently have days off in the middle of the week. And all my friends would be working their Monday to Friday jobs, and I would work every Saturday and Sunday. So it's amazing I got as much board gaming done as I did. But it was just like a random Tuesday, and I was bored. And so I just recorded a video with my iPhone and Spent about 20 seconds thinking about a name for the channel. It's funny how these tiny decisions, like now it's my full-time job, it's my career. And I spent about 20 (laughs) seconds, just an offhand thing. I didn't think I would even make a second video, but you know, here it is. So yeah, it's been really cool. I've been doing this full-time, well, since the pandemic. My old event job kind of went into hibernation when a global pandemic hit. Not and, a lot uh, of events. By the time it came back out, I'd been full-time with John Gets Games for a couple of years, and I just decided that this is the thing that I'm doing now. So try to make it work. <laughs> that is so awesome. cool you were able to do it full-time. I feel very lucky. When the pandemic really hit, all of my coworkers in the event industry, most of them didn't have something to fall back on, and I just had this already. I was already part-time, semi-professional doing this. I- I'm a pretty lucky person, and that was definitely a lucky break that I had that I could just swing into this. Awesome. Well, I can say it's definitely awesome to have you on the show. I've actually listened to your channel off and on over the years. I actually remember when you first came onto the scene as a board game reviewer. It's really cool to see how much your channel has grown. How many subscribers are you up to now on YouTube? It's around 41,000. That's amazing. Awesome. It's it's unreal, wow. honestly, if I'm honest, being honest with you. I remember when I first hit 5,000 subscribers, my wife planned a surprise game day, a surprise 5,000 subscriber game day. <laughs> and some friends of mine 3D printed a little YouTube icon logo thing because YouTube actually sends you this, yeah. this thing once you hit 100,000 yeah. subscribers. So they hit 5,000. My friend 3D printed this. Another friend painted it. And I just showed up at our house one day expecting nothing. And there was like 30 people there. Did a whole surprise thing. And it was very cool. So I've had support, huge support from my friends and family since the very beginning. But it's just crazy to think back that that was this huge monumentous thing when I hit 5,000, which yeah. it is. And now it's at 41. It just... You know, time slips by. <laughs> yeah. So cool. No, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, in a very crowded and increasingly crowded board game review space, 
you know, us being a prime example, we're kind of new kids on the block. I would definitely consider your content to be up there, upper tier. And I remember when I found out you were actually a listener, I couldn't hardly believe it. I was actually on the guild and we had a couple of people join our guild and they were in our hidden gems thread where we talk about games that are hidden that we might review on the show. And they were like, yeah, I came here because of JGG. And then another guy said, yeah, JGG brought me here. And I said, JGG. I was like, John gets games? And I was like, nah. I was like, that can't be. Can't be right. <laughs> so I went over on YouTube and went over to your channel and started clicking on videos. And I saw a video called Games Radar. And I was like, well, if he did, it would be this. And sure enough, there we were with a few mentions, I guess, of ones yeah. you heard on our podcast. Like I you said, were... I've, I've never heard a lot of these games. And I was like, I want to tell other people about these games. They sound cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just totally blown away. It was super cool. And the reason I really mentioned that is for our listeners and our guild members, there are a lot of content creators out there. We know that. You can't listen to everybody. But I would highly recommend, John, especially the Games Radar videos, I think are really cool for highlighting the kind of games we like. You do cover some of the new stuff on there too, but you also talk about older games, games you just heard of, things like that I think is a really interesting segment. Yeah, it's just like the 30 or so new games over the last month I learned about that I thought were cool for one reason or another. Yeah. It's just crazy how many games that come out that I have to pare it down to 30 <laughs> yeah. in a month. But, you know, that's that's the world that we're living in. And they don't have to be new, right? They're new to you, that's I true. guess. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, we're definitely talking about some old games later on today as well. For sure. All right, John, so you're almost off the hot seat here, but as I like to do, I'm going to hit you with a barrage of rapid-fire questions. If you okay. listen to the episode with Ghidorah, a lot of these will be similar, but I'm in a kind of funny mood, so you know, I don't even know <laughs> what I'm going to ask. Just quick answers right off the top of your head. Favorite okay. game? Teach you. Oh, boy. Good you're, you were not expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> you're playing to us. That's awesome. That might be some of our favorite games. It's not mine, but it's close. Might be Cameron. Close. I was playing it Very today. Close. What is a game that everyone else likes that you hate? Twilight Struggle. Okay. I'm sure Thought there's some other ones, Scythe. but that's the... <laughs> <laughs> Scythe is fine. Every time I play Scythe, I end up having a fine time, but I never recommend it. No, Twilight Struggle is a game that I think is an excellent game that it seems like people still really like, maybe less so these days. When I first got into the hobby, it was jockeying for the number one place on BGG. But yeah. man, that game just infuriates me. I turn into my worst <laughs> self when I play that game. <laughs> so, oh, you played this card? Just kidding, you lose. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. right. If, you, if you're not familiar with the game, that deck can throw some real zingers at you for sure. Yeah, it's a deck of cards. It's a two-player only game. The cards are either for one player or the other. So you can easily draw a hand of cards that are only for your opponent. You can still play them, but they're terrible. And honestly, you could play them well at the right time, but oh man, I just complain like nobody's business. I sold that <laughs> copy after two or three plays. I was like, I don't like myself when I play this game. That's awesome. All right. How many games do you hold in your collection, John? Uh, we hover around 300. I think a better question would be how many games have left our collection. How many games and have left your collection? It's approaching 1,000. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Yeah. You keep it lean and trim. We really try to. I have a 5x5 five five Calyx Ikea bookshelf thing that I actually bought before I owned a single board game. Just kind of funny that I happened to buy this thing that's so commonly done for board games. And uh, we try to keep our collection to that. 
and then this smaller bookshelf that holds all of our little card games. I say try, that's the emphasis word, because right now there's a mountain of games stacked on top of it. There's a mountain of games on the dining room table right next to it. It's really hard. As time goes on and I keep culling the collection, there's just some games I'm never going to get rid of. And that number slowly grows and it's getting really hard to fit it all in there. So yeah, yeah, it's tough, but we try. Honestly, I get lost in my own collection with 300 games about what we have. Like somebody comes up, you know, what do we want to play? I'm just looking at my shelf and get kind of dizzy from it. And then I go to other people's <laughs> places from what I've heard, like you, Chris, and I just can't even imagine having two, three, four times as many of those. Like, how do you find anything? Like I can barely find them in my own. <laughs> but let's just put it this way. I have bought the same game twice a few times. <laughs> I'm like, we're, we're where would I put working this? And on, I go to put it there and it's sitting there and I'm like, oh God. We're currently working on plans to build an entire separate building in Chris's backyard just for his game collection. He already has one. It already is a separate building. <laughs> it is a separate building. That's right. We have to expand. All right. Curveball time. This may not yeah. land at all, but we're going to go with it. Growing up, what was your favorite Saturday morning cartoon? Oh, man. Uh, VR Troopers. That's the first one. that. It's not a cartoon. It was kind of like Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Okay, yeah, but, yeah. But not. Although the more I watched it as a kid, the more I realized it was just Star Wars. Gotcha. <laughs> like, oh, the main bad guy. That's the main good guy's father. Okay, I'm starting to see some connections. <laughs> it, it was live action. It wasn't a cartoon. But that's the first one that I could think of that I remember like, every Saturday wanting to make sure I didn't miss of an episode. Awesome. <laughs> what was your go-to cereal on Saturday morning? Oh, well, I mean, there's a difference between the go-to cereal and the go-to cereal I wanted. Uh, my favorite <laughs> cereal was Trix, but my mom would never get that for me because it was way too sugary. <laughs> Honestly, I'm a Raisin Bran guy. I freaking love Raisin Bran. It's so good. And my, I love Raisin We always had it in the too. house. I support yeah. <laughs> I buy Raisin Bran still because it's literally the only cereal that my kids will not eat. And if I buy cereal, they eat it. I literally have to hide the cereal boxes in the house if I want to eat like Cookie Crisp or something fun because Chris they will eat it. Sugary cereal. Oh yeah, dude. Is when I was that's young, that's the best part about being an adult. Chocula. You just buy any cereal you want, right? <laughs> Your special was, Halloween Frankenstein cereal. So Talia walked through the door yesterday with Count Chocula, Boo Berry, and Frankenberry, and it made me very happy. Yeah, <laughs> that time of year. It is that time of year. Okay, a couple more, John, real quick. Yeah. First thing that pops in your head, give us a movie recommendation. Arrival. Arrival's one of my favorite movies. I'm a huge sci-fi buff. And, um, that's I enjoyed one that one. Best. Yeah. yeah I've, that's one of the few movies I've seen multiple times. That one and uh, Interstellar. That's also one of my favorite movies. Interstellar's awesome. Several times as well. It's yeah. very good. I know it's a bit polarizing, but I get swept up by it every time I watch it. Awesome. How about a TV show? TV show, um, For All Mankind. Well, yeah, so I say that one because it's like the new one, but The Expanse is maybe even a stronger recommendation. Ooh. As you can tell, I'm a huge sci-fi fan. Um, <laughs> We've talked about The Expanse on here before. I just read yeah. the entire book series. Yeah, I just finished yeah. the last book when it came out a couple months ago. It was oh, man. it was incredible. It's one of the best pieces of fiction I've ever consumed. That's uh, interesting. The, the show think... is great as well, but the books, oh my goodness. Yeah, I don't think I realized that the last book only came out recently. Yeah, I think just about three months ago or so. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, cool. I started reading it three or four years ago, and I was instantly worried because I read Game of Thrones and the Name of the Wind, King Killer series and everything like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of used to really getting into a book and then realizing that it might never actually have the series finish. And then I looked into it, and the Expanse books came out like clockwork every 16 months or so. It was a very reasonable rate. So it was fun to read them. The, the last three, I think I read as they came out. Man, I'm really curious your thoughts on the ending of the series, but I don't want to. 
Wait, we can't spoil it. Don't spoil me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I could tell you this. I really liked how it ended. So there you go. (laughs) Nice. All right. And then lastly, so you actually mentioned just a few minutes ago, you used to play a lot of video games, but not as much now. But if you were to give us a video game recommendation and you can go back as far as you want, what would you recommend? I'm trying to think if I have a better one. Okay, yeah. The most recent game I really fell for was Subnautica. It's all about being on an alien planet covered in water, and it's kind of a survival game, but really not that big of an emphasis on it. Like I said, I don't really play video games much anymore, and I don't like being stressed out in video games, and I don't like boss battles. I'm not a fan of Twitch skill type things. And uh, Subnautica was actually recommended to me by a friend when I was pretty depressed, and he said that it was really good for just transporting. And so I got it and I played it and it was amazing, like truly amazing, both that and the second one for just existing in a low key world, exploring things, occasionally getting a little scary, but honestly not that scary. I'm a big scaredy cat. I was totally (laughs) fine with it. I I could not recommend that game more. Like one of the few things that I wish I could erase my brain and do it again. That's (laughs) awesome. That is actually on my to play list as soon as I play Tunic. <laughs> yeah, you that can't game play looks anything fun. else. I just can't play, play it on Chris. the Switch, so it, I haven't tried it yet. Chris is not allowed to play anything else until he plays Tunic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. Well, you are off the hot seat, my friend. Thanks for well, entertaining us. I wasn't that hot. It was Luke yeah, I, I'm a wimp. <laughs> I, mostly, I just try to get people talking about nerdy stuff because it's fun. Yeah, I like to hear what people are into and enjoy and stuff like that. Well, speaking of things that we are into recently and enjoy. What have you been into, Jason? Yeah, so there's a show that I've been watching recently that I feel like we have to talk about because I know Cameron and Chris, you guys have watched it too. John, we mentioned before we started recording that you've seen it too. Yep. And I've been told that we haven't talked about this on the show yet. I cannot remember, honestly. We talk about so many things on here, I can never remember, but I'm pretty sure we have. We have mentioned it, but we have not talked about our non-spoilery thoughts about it, which I think are worthwhile. Yeah, I think <laughs> when you I think when you mentioned it before, it was like, ooh, I should check that out. But now we've actually all seen it. That's true. What yeah, is I think the show? I, I, the suspense. So, severance. Yes. All right. So the premise of this show, for anybody who doesn't remember from previously or hasn't seen it, is that they've devised this medical procedure whereby you can have your brain split in half. Basically, this sounds super weird, but it's cool in the actual show. It's such that when you go to work, you have no memory of your home life. And when you leave work, you have no memory of your work life. So it's this procedure done by the company that they work for, this company called Lumen. It has the guy from Parks and Rec, Ben from Parks and Rec, in it is the main character. Adam Scott, yeah. Uh, Yeah, Adam Scott. So he has this procedure and he starts going to the office and he begins to notice some things, we'll say. We're not going to give away anything here. (laughs) But he begins to notice some things going on that might not be on the up and up. And starts to try to figure out what's going on. Both personalities of him, which is what's so fascinating, I think, about this show. You mentioned being severed, Jason. But just to give you an idea of what this looks like in the show, when they travel down or up the elevator, that's when the severing process kicks in. So if you were leaving work for the day, you step in the elevator, the doors close, and then they immediately open back up. And it's like you're walking right back into work the next day. It's like you never left. Your inside person just only ever exists in the office, and your right. outside person only ever exists outside the office. In right, way. right. I'm just going to say I think this show is awesome. It's the best show I've watched yeah. all year, for sure. I think it's fascinating how it starts to play with this idea of you become two different people. 
your any and your Audi, as they call them in the show, are very different. And in some circumstances, with some of the characters, extremely different, right? And their motivations and desires and things like that without being too spoilery. But I thought that was just a really fascinating aspect of the show. Yeah, one thing I really like about it is this idea, this narrative idea, essentially. And they lean into the cool parts of it, and they lean away from trying to tell you how it actually works. Like, that's one thing that really bugs me about certain media when they try to over-explain their cool idea. It's like, no, 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 you don't need to explain why severing could medically happen. Obviously, it couldn't. Just lean into what this could do for the story. And it turns into a really great, gripping story. It's kind of a mystery. It's kind of spooky without being scary mm-hmm. it's it's, it's darkly it's really, humorous yeah d- yeah dark humor for sure i remember when my wife and i watched it we finished the first episode the credits rolled and the first thing you see is directed by ben stiller yes and we we just both <laughs> about fell off of our couch like <laughs> what <laughs> it turns out he's actually a really great director and it's not something that i would have expected after just knowing him as an actor but yeah the show is is very very well done The thing that I appreciated that they did in the show is it's not just this merely futuristic thing that's this severance thing is just widely accepted. It's a new concept and it's controversial in the narrative. And that actually becomes part of the story. When they did that, I was like, oh, wow. They had people handing out flyers and talking about, hey, you should protest this and this sort of thing. It was like a cultural problem in the world of the story. And that made it feel so real. That it's not this just simple thing that everyone accepts without question. They're like, no, there is a moral question here. And yeah. where do you land, you know? Yeah, I think it plays really well in that space. I think it's an incredibly smart show and an excellent first season. I'm looking forward to the next one. I hope they're able to keep running with the ball the way they have. The season finale was incredible. Oh. Don't spoil anything, but it was it was incredible. <laughs> I, I will say for me personally, and this isn't me saying I'm clever by any means, but I do feel like shows sometimes try to be too clever and you can kind of see it coming a mile away. Severance got me twice. Just totally <laughs> caught me off guard on two things that I just did not see coming. One in particular just floored me. It was so clever. It's got a great cliffhanger ending that's not frustrating. It's more revealing. And now you're just like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next season? Next, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Apple just did an event, the new iPhone event, for their September fall product reveal. And there was a teaser for Severance Season 2 in there. Yeah, I saw that. It was like a couple seconds, but yeah, got me excited (laughs) all all over again. They've got a really good marketing department for that stuff right now. (laughs) Well, as we usually do on the show, we tend to talk about the cocktails that we're drinking. Since we're not all in the same room tonight, I think we have a couple different things going on. So Chris, tell us about what you made tonight. Yeah, so if you've been a listener to the show, and if you know me personally, you know one of my favorite go-to cocktails is a Tom Collins. It's just such an easy drink, refreshing one of my favorites. It was a little boring, but it's good. I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> so tonight, in honor of John from John Gets Games, I made a John Collins, <laughs> which is basically a Tom Collins, but instead of two ounces of gin, you do two ounces of bourbon. So it's a bourbon-based Collins, basically, oh, which I nice. really enjoy as well. You're saying I'm more of a bourbon than a gin. I, I, th- I take you as more of a bourbon guy, John. <laughs> I think that's true. I think I would prefer bourbon over gin. I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> Sweet. Well, uh, Jason and I did a different one. This one's called She's Your Aunt, John. <laughs> Based and... on Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yep. <laughs> so 
So this I one is John Snow to Halloween one. So I kind of got the John Snow hair going right now too. Yeah, <laughs> which I'm digging. It's I, I find funny on your your channel. Your hair has been a great topic of conversation over the last few weeks. <laughs> so she's yeah. her aunt John has one and a half ounces of black rum, one and a half ounces of tequila, quarter ounce of Chambord, quarter ounce of lemon juice, and two ounces of orange juice. It's a very boozy drink. <laughs> it's quite good, though. Yeah, it's nice. Oh, and I, I, fair, threw, I threw bitters in mine because I love bitters. Got to. He made them. To be fair, my wife made mine for me, so thanks to Jenny. <laughs> some good cocktails to enjoy tonight and some good games to talk about. I'm real excited yeah. to get into the games tonight. So for tonight's episode, we specifically asked John, when we asked him to come onto the show, to pick out games that he, at least at the time that we asked him, felt like were hidden gem games that deserved a little bit more recognition that he feels like are flying under the radar. And we settled on two for this show that we're going to talk about, Pioneers and Square on Sale. So we're going to yeah. be talking about those tonight, and we're going to see if John still considers these gems, if he still holds them in high regard, sees them favorably, and how we feel about them as a podcast group. Awesome. Yeah, I threw, uh, I think, 16 options at you. You did. Uh, I had no idea what you were going to go with. I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, these are interesting games for sure. There's a lot to talk about for both of them. Well, I can tell you the, the logic was, so for Pioneers, Emmanuel Ornella, always a draw. And then Square on Sale was actually recommended. And I'll go ahead and give them the shout out now since we're talking about it by a couple of people in our guild. So Dylan St. Clair. Our boy Dylan, Dylan recommended Square on Cell. And then another guild member who we've not gotten to mention yet, Cody Kunka, also recommended that we play Square on Cell. And so for those reasons, I picked those two games. Awesome. Yeah. All right. I think it's time to start talking about these games. Let's do it. Let's do it. Perfect. People from all over Europe are surging into the new world, America, hoping to start new lives. Departing from the East Coast, pioneers move westward, colonizing the land. That's it. Totally. <laughs> <That was cool. laughs> Sounds pretty spot on to me. Yep, that covers it. All right. Pioneers, published in 2017 by Queen Games and Piotnik. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 2,439. Designer of this game, as I mentioned earlier, is Emmanuel Ornella. Really great designer. Has also designed Assyria, Bazans, Martinique, Ultramare, Il Principe, Jason, among many, many others. I don't we'll, think I've played a single one of those games. We will <laughs> be doing an Emmanuel Ornella episode in the future, for sure. I yeah. look forward to it. I, <laughs> I haven't played any of them either, He's, but I own Il Principe. Uh, so Bazans and Martinique are really cool games, actually. And we have the other ones, so it's happening. It's happening. Awesome. All right, brief rule summary for Pioneers. So Pioneers is a game of westward expansion in the United States where the players are trying to settle as many of their color pioneers as possible in different locations on the map in order to score points. The game board in Pioneers depicts the continental United States containing several circular areas that are interconnected by lines. At the start of the game, these different circular locations are randomly populated by different types of pioneer tiles. 
So these would be bankers, barkeepers, merchants, etc. In Pioneers, each player's turn consists of three different phases. First, the player will collect three coins as income. However, if the active player has settled one of their Pioneers on one or two banker tile spaces, they will receive one or two additional coins of income, respectively. More on Pioneers and settling in a minute. Second, the player will then spend money to perform one of three available actions. Build one road, build two roads, or purchase a new coach or wagon. If the active player has settled one of their pioneers on one or two merchant tile spaces, they will receive the ability to do one or two additional actions during this phase of their turn, respectively. I'll go ahead and mention that coaches are important because they hold your color's pioneers from which you will populate locations on the board while roads are important in creating connected networks of your pioneers on the board. Finally, the player will then move the shared stagecoach pawn on the map board and settle one of their pioneers in a vacant location on the map. When moving the stagecoach, if the player passes over an opponent's road, they pay them $1. If they pass over their own road, they pay nothing. And if they move along a path with no road, they pay the bank $1. A player can move the stagecoach as far as they want as long as they have enough money to do so. Once the player has ended the stagecoach's movement, they will then transfer a pioneer from one of their coaches onto a location with a matching pioneer tile and then perform the accompanying pioneer action. So let me give you an example so that makes sense. If I have a gold miner pioneer on one of my coaches, I can transfer that meeple, that pioneer, onto a location that has the matching gold miner tile if the stagecoach pawn is there and then do that type of pioneer's action. In this case, I will be drawing a gold nugget from the bag, which will give you a certain number of points. If the placed pioneer is the last pioneer on that coach, the player will also score a number of victory points equal to the value of that coach. After you've placed your pioneer in a clockwise direction, you can invite the other players to settle one of their pioneers on that location as well. If a player agrees, they will pay you, the active player, $2.00, and then place a matching pioneer from one of their coaches onto that map space. The game will end once one player has placed all of their roads, or there are no more coaches available to reveal for purchase. Once this happens, the players will then evaluate their road networks, and this is very important. Each player will identify their uninterrupted road network, so their color of roads, that contains the most of their color pioneers, and then score two points per pioneer in that road network. Most points wins the game. And that is generally how you play Pioneers. All right, so as I mentioned, there's a lot of different ways we can go with discussion here, but I think a good one to start with is this idea of this shared communal stagecoach pawn. So if it wasn't clear from the rules, we will all corporately be moving a stagecoach pawn to all the different circular locations on the board. So if I want to do something towards the west coast, I pick the pawn up and move it over there. But Jason maybe doesn't want it over there. So on his turn, if he wants it back towards the east coast, he would have to move it back that direction. So there's a little bit of a wrestling that maybe goes on with this pawn as you're trying to get it to where you want it to go while not spending too much money to do so. So how did you all feel about that dynamic in this game, the use of that stagecoach pawn? Yeah, I thought this was awesome. It definitely adds a lot of tension because not only are you having to think about where do I want to move the stagecoach to get the action that I want, but you're also having to think about where is everyone else trying to get to and where are they going to move it? I thought that was a pretty cool tension that you're always looking out for where somebody else is going to move it. 
Yeah, the shared pawn is the main reason I was curious to try this game originally, and it's the main reason why I've continued to play it. It's a mechanic that's really rare, um, mm -hmm. at least in competitive games. There's only one other one that I can think of, a game called Isla Dorada that came out five or six years ago, and I remember really wanting to like it, but it just kind of fell flat for me. But that was also one where everybody's moving along together competitively. Yep. And I think one of the reasons I love it in Pioneers is because it has a escalating tempo, because of the way the board clears out. The very first person's turn, there's literally only two options. It's a, you know, <laughs> this or that. So you have to pick one of them. Mm -hmm. But once you get to like the third turn of the game, now there's seven options, and now there's 12 options and the stagecoach can go so far yes and a big part of it that jason was touching on is burying the stagecoach in your friendly territory to make the lives of your opponents miserable <laughs> <laughs> you know because you can run the stagecoach along your own roads yep. and roads are important for end game scoring hugely important but they're also important for these super highways that you're going to be building across the united states and there have been many games of this that i played where on one turn, the stagecoach is over Idaho, and the next turn, it's in Florida, and the next turn, it's in Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just like from one edge of the country to the other, as we're trying to get the Pioneer token that works, but going along a whole bunch of your roads, potentially to some spots that are not helpful for other people, forces them to pay the bank or even yeah. better, you, and that feels really good. <laughs> also, it's like super annoying. I played this one two or three weeks ago. And uh, my friend Anastasia just kept shoving it in the worst possible spot. And I, every single turn, I was like, why am I back over here on the West Coast? Like, <laughs> and just spending all my money. But there's also this really interesting thing. As you build this organic road network, you want it to be all connected. Yes. That's the way you can score big points at the end of the game. But you also want it to be connected because once you're on your network, you can go anywhere like a magic carpet, just teleport anywhere for no money. And so it seems like a lot of times right before you move the stagecoach, you're like analyzing your options. And the first thing that you look at is how soon can I get back to my own super highway? How much money do I have to spend to get there? Because once I'm there, there's so many different options that open up. And yeah, it's very dynamic and makes some great tension, I feel like. Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned the roads in relation to the stagecoach, because this was one of the things that I found to be most interesting, especially early in the game. A lot of the things you've been describing, John, are more middle and late games when those road networks really expand. And I totally agree yeah. with you. One of the things I really struggled with early in the game, which was a good struggle, because the money is so tight in this game, especially early, if you haven't gotten a banker, you really feel strapped for money. At least I did. And so I found myself with the dilemma of, do I lay these two roads down adjacent to the stagecoach so that I can move for free and get to where I need to go cheaply so that I can save money to do other things? But maybe that's not a part of my network. Those two roads that I laid down maybe aren't part of my network. And then I'm kind of gambling a little, right? Because if I lay those two roads down, but then I don't connect those roads to my bigger network, then I'm going to get screwed, right? And Which is great yeah. because I can get chopped out of a lot of points because that network scoring can be huge at the end. And so you're tempted to want to just try to constantly lay roads down off of your network. But sometimes that's not always the most cost-effective thing to do. And so there's a decision point there. Right, which I really Once you can enjoy. cut off Jason, because if you can lay down roads <laughs> right exactly where Jason wanted to make roads, that makes the game all worth it. Just That's way just more <laughs> automatically a good move. Yeah. When you're uh, sitting right next to him and you take your turn and Jason goes, Cameron! <laughs> oh, it's the best. Well, it's funny, I, I think that happened to you, Cameron, in one of our games. You 
I oh, think would have oh, no, actually that broke, won. That broke my game. Yeah, I very foolishly did not make the necessary effort to connect my East Coast big section and my West Coast big section by one road. And the failure was actually due to not picking up one of the blue dudes. I had an opportunity to, and I, I lost my train of thought on my turn, and I didn't take out the last blue dude, and that, I think, cost me the game. Yeah, the Blue Pioneer lets you double up a road. Yep, Normally, right. there's only one road per connection. So yeah, the jockeying for those blue activations is huge. So it's yeah, a resource management thing, this. right? There's, there's a limited number of the different colored tokens on the map. And if you run out of the ones that you need, there's the potential to cause issues. Yep. Yeah, there's also a variable number of them. You don't put all the tiles out at the start of every game. Oh, so to okay. make one game different from the other. Last time I played about a month ago, there was, I think, like two or maybe three of the blue ones on the entire board. Oh, my gosh. And it was a lot less wow. than normal. And so we kind of all realized that we could not be risky yep. with our networks. It's very hard to put those together. Yeah. And yeah, I love the fact that you can build roads anywhere. Like mm -hmm. so often with network games, you have to like build off of your network. And of course, it's good to build off your network, but you don't have to. Yeah. And so the game is constantly asking you to risk it. Like, right. well, you know, yeah. if you go over here, this turn, it saves you this turn. And it's just like, Two other roads. It's way over there. Nobody, <laughs> everyone else is looking over here. No one's going to look over there. And then you'd finish your turn, and then you're just sitting there sweating yep. as you're like, you know, next turn I just need to do this, and I just need to pull that off. I've seen a game where one of my opponents was actually rather upset when they weren't <laughs> able to connect things because of one road going from first to last place yeah. in that one swing. And so you really have to pay attention to when you have to just close the gap and be like, you know what, this turn, I'm going to throw a road way back over there and not worry about this turn. My activation this turn is going to be not that great because I'm shoring up a humongous amount of points. Right on the back end. And it's so easy to be like, I'll get to it next turn. I'll get to it next turn yep. until you waited one turn too much. There are so many good trade-off decisions in this game. Even just the fact that you can move across a road and pay money to do it, even if there's no road there, right? That's a brilliant decision. Yeah. Most of the time in these networking games, you lay out your track and then you travel along the track, right? The fact that you can opt to perhaps be a little less efficient, but travel across a, a location where there is no road just opens up the possibilities yeah. so much in the game. Well, that's actually better than traveling on your opponent's road, right? If you travel yeah. on your mm -hmm. opponent's yeah. road, you have to pay them. I'd much rather pay the bank. <laughs> right. Right. So speaking of trade-offs, another thing that I found really interesting about this game is it gives you this option to follow your opponents. So what I mean by that is if you place a pioneer in a location going clockwise, one of your opponents, whoever chooses to jump on it first, can place that same type of pioneer from one of their wagons onto that same location on the board thereby getting them off of their wagons and onto the board. But the trade-off is that they cannot perform that Pioneer's action. They're just getting them off of their wagon. Also $2. And you pay them $2, yeah. right? Which is Yeah, that, that could be huge. Again, money in this game is tight, I think. So that can be very important. What did you guys think about that element of the game? It's a pain point for sure because every person's turn, you have the opportunity to follow. So every time you're like, okay, do I go for that? Or do I really need the action associated with that space? I think you make a good point. If at all possible, and I couldn't always do it, but I almost always try to ensure I had $2 at the end of my turn just to be able to follow because that following action is so helpful. Because if it wasn't clear from the rules, every time you clear a wagon, that's points. So getting your people yeah. off the wagons is just a good way to score points. But Cameron makes a good point, too. I might be able to follow, but sometimes I don't because I might need that action. If I have a blue guy on the wagon, maybe I need to sit him on there because I might need to double up a road somewhere. And so that's a decision you have to make. 
Should I follow and try to get people off or do I hold these guys back for their actions? I really like that decision. Yeah, John, you said that it can be make or break whether you connect your entire network. But this game also is a lot of recipe fulfillment, right? You still have to score a substantial number of points by unloading wagons. And that's actually one of the mistakes that I made that I felt put me behind is I didn't realize how important it is earlier on in the game to give yourself flexibility to pick up new wagons. And I thought that was an interesting element of this game too, is looking out on what wagons are going to be available and trying to snag them because sometimes they're well calibrated to the state of the board and they could be desirable to other players. And if you can snatch it and prevent someone else from getting it, that can be valuable. Yeah, one of the Pioneer tokens in particular is the Farmer, and I've really enjoyed trying to maximize that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The effect of the Farmer lets you put up to two more Farmers down. And if you're able to do a three Farmer activation in your network, A, it feels great. B, it's a bunch of points at the end of the game. And C, you just clear off three spaces from your stagecoaches. It's something that's hard to put together. And it's something that I've found is it's easier to do when you're playing with people who are less experienced with the game. Because the (laughs) Farmer feels less interesting when you first play. It doesn't have that pizzazz of extra income or more actions or putting a road down where there's other roads. But in a sneaky way, it's one of the most powerful actions that's out there if you're able to set things up right with the stagecoaches. And the, the first time somebody does a big Farmer action in every game, everybody else goes, oh, like, I get it. I shouldn't be avoiding the green ones. Got it. (laughs) So it's interesting, John, we talked about the farmer and the Mm -hmm. power of that action. I think that was probably the one thing that stuck out to us. And I'm not even sure it's a con necessarily. It's just something that stood out pretty strongly as we played, which was, can you win this game if you don't place multiple farmers out on the board? Because once you have experienced players who are all doing it and are are all competing over those farmers, It's such a powerful action. You're getting three people off your wagons at one time. You're essentially gaining six points automatically. Theoretically, yeah. Theoretically, if it's part of your network, (laughs) but you'd be a fool to not make it part of your network, right? Like I said, I don't know if it's a con because it's hard to prove, but it, it seems like a very powerful action that if you're not at least somewhat pursuing it, you might be in trouble. But interested to hear you guys' thoughts. I never thought about it from that perspective. I'm not saying that that's wrong. It's just an interesting take. To me, the power level of the different actions varies drastically over the course of the game. The most powerful action, period, at the beginning of the game is getting another bank. Yep. Because that increases your income. And Mm -hmm. the sooner you get it, the more money you get over the course of the whole game. Right. Like a farmer action in the first third I would argue is a mistake almost because there's engine building, there's road building, there's a lot more things. Like it almost feels like there's a farmer moment where you can take your foot off the gas pedal of some other things and shift into cashing in those points. I don't have a crystal clear anecdote to say I've definitely seen people win by doing no massive farmer actions, but I think you can definitely be competitive because you're going to be gunning after other things. Yeah, um, Like we said, the blue one, you could go from first place to last place by taking a blue one at the right time. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're trying to ask the question, is it overpowered, which kind of sounds like you were trying to avoid asking explicitly, and you did say, can you win the game without it? I think the answer is yes. I nearly did. I didn't do any farmers when I nearly won that game and I made a mistake that led to my downfall. Like John said, I missed a blue one and it put me from potentially first to dead last. So I think there were definitely other possibilities, but it is a strong move if you can do it. I just think that the balancing force is the players at the table have to compete over the ability to do that. And when it's that competitive, not everybody can do it. And so it's in the interest of the person who's 
least likely to be able to pull it off to just try to go do something else. Pioneers affords you that opportunity. We talk about the multiple paths to victory and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I think that this game is built in such a way that you can choose a different path that isn't farmers and potentially make your way to victory. Yeah, I think you can certainly choose different paths, but if you can do the farmers, you're going to, right? And I think sure. that's where my con comes in. It's kind of similar to what Jason says, is I'm fearful that this game will fall into conventions or repeated patterns of play mm. that you're at least striving to do from the start. And so what I mean by that, and we've kind of said it a little bit already, but I'll summarize it. To me, when I sit down to play a game of Pioneers, what I'm thinking is get a banker and or a merchant ideally both, to start the game, do the three farmer action if I'm absolutely able, and build up a stock of coaches. That's what I'm thinking every time I play this game at the start. And I don't see that as a good thing. To me, I've mentioned it many times on the podcast, if I come into a game thinking about what I'm going to do before the game has started, and it's the same thing over and over again, that's worrisome, right? And I feel like the design of the game points you in that direction. And I can actually, I think, prove it. So if you look at the starting coaches that you get in Pioneers, everybody starts with a coach. And it's got five Pioneers on it. If you look at them, what's interesting about them is they all have a mixture of Pioneers. But every starting coach has a merchant and a banker on it. So basically what the design of the game is telling you is those two people are too important to not be a starting character. Or in other words, if somebody were to get a random coach that didn't have one of those two, they'd be disadvantaged. Disadvantage, yeah. So the game is telling you, do this. (laughs) Do this early, right? And so for me personally, that's always a ding because I don't want the game to dictate what I should do based on how it is designed, if that makes sense. Because I feel like it falls into conventions that I don't necessarily enjoy in a game, if that makes sense what I'm saying. I see what you're saying. I can't help but feel like this game doesn't deserve that kind of criticism at the same time because of the design space that it has. This isn't Maracaibo or Bitoku or Ark Nova or some enormous Euro game with bits all over the place and a 45-minute rules teach. This game is very streamlined. That's part of the reason I like it so much. And I don't think there are multiple paths to victory in this game. You get your points from clearing your stagecoaches and making your network. And if you do just one of those, you will lose. If you just focus on the network and not your stage coaches, I feel like you'll lose. And I personally don't see that as a negative to the game because I think that's just a hallmark of what this kind of game is. It's very focused on that. And like you said, everybody can do a banker and a merchant early on in the game. And it, that makes sense. At the power level of but, these is better the earlier you get. But them. if you but can't because, because other people are aggressively grabbing them, do you then feel disadvantaged because everybody got one and you didn't? I don't. Because of my experience, you can go after something else. I feel like all of them can certainly be good. If I can get a banker on my first turn, yeah, I'm super happy. Like I'm never not doing that. But I frequently can't because the banker is so hotly contested early on. And instead, I go after something else. I think the one real con that I have for this game is the gold miner, which is the one thing we haven't talked about. We have all these different actions that you can do that are good at different times. Like we said, the banker and the merchant, great early game. The the farmer, great in the middle of the game. The blue one's great literally whenever you can take it. But the miner, all you do is you draw a random gold nugget from a pile, and it's going to be worth three, four, or five victory points. The reason I don't like this that much, the reason I think it's kind of a con for the game, isn't so much the randomness, because the the swing is two points. And, And you could win or lose this game by two points, for sure. 
My problem with it is that it's boring. Uh, my <laughs> my credo in, in games is that points are boring. That that's kind of the thing I always fall back on. Obviously, you want to get victory points to win, but if I have multiple things that I can do, and one of them is just get a pile of points, and the other one is do something else, anything else, I'm going to do the thing that's anything else because I like to do things. Like, sure, I want to have the most points at the end, but if I have all these options, I'm going to take a bartender over the miner every single time. I'll take a bartender to remove a miner from my cart so I don't have to do a minor action because that's just more interesting to me because now I can maybe flip over my stagecoach and get an extra money and progress all these other things. Yeah. I just feel like in a game where there are seven different actions total i think six of them are interesting and i think six of them are potentially the best action you could possibly have in this moment depending on when that moment is and then there's the mind that's like the <laughs> consolation prize i just feel like it, it could have been more and that's just a bit disappointing before we get into final thoughts since we got john on the episode today i think let's go ahead and review our grading scale how about that yeah, I think it's a good idea. If we've got any new listeners, welcome. How we grade things on Hidden Gems is we use a one to six point scale with one being the lowest and six being the highest. If we give a game a one, it means we don't like the game, but we don't like the game because we feel like there's some sort of design flaw in the game. It's broken in some way. Mechanically, the game is off, which makes us not enjoy it. A two for us, we also dislike the game, but it's not because we think the game is broken in any way. We just don't enjoy the game. It's not fun for us. It's not our kind of a game. A three game is what we call the meh game. It's just a game that's okay. It's not necessarily bad, but it doesn't excite us. It's not one we're actively looking towards to play and pull off the shelf. Now, a four, this is where we start getting into the good stuff. A four is a good game. We like this game. We enjoy the game. If somebody was like, hey, let's play this game, we'd be like, sure, let's go ahead and play it. We enjoy it. Five is above average. These are games that we actively reach for on our shelves to try to introduce to people. We're a big fan of the game. We want to show people this game as much as possible. We think it's pretty great. And then six are our favorite games. We think this is the top tier, one of our favorite games. All right. So with that being said, Jason, why don't you kick us off into final thoughts? Man, I'm getting put on the spot here. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm not going to beat around the bush on this game. I really enjoyed this one. It's a great, tense... What am I trying to say? That's why you got to <laughs> write it down, bro. <laughs> I did write it down. I just don't like reading my notes. All right, hang on. Yeah, this is a great tense little Euro. Honestly, I don't feel like we've played many Euros recently on the show. Nope. So it's kind of refreshing to play something like this after a while. As we talked about in the review, there's just so many interesting trade-offs that you're having to think through on every turn. Every turn is important and every dollar you spend is important. Mm -hmm. And any game that's like that, I just really enjoy the constant debate that you're having with yourself of, ah, should I spend that extra $2 and give Cameron $2 to place this extra pioneer down? There's just so many good choices here. So I settled on a five for this game. I think it's solidly in the five category for me. Could even improve over time. Ooh, Who knows? Okay. Queenies. <laughs> yeah, let's get those queenies out. All right, John, what do you think? So I was really happy when you picked this one out. Like I said, I sent you 16 different game <laughs> options to cover, and you said Pioneers, and I was not expecting you to. And I think part of the reason for that is because this game could not have flown lower on the radar. Yeah. I think there's a few reasons for that. One is that this one first came out on Kickstarter, which is not unusual for Queen games. Nope. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Kickstarter was the Merlin Kickstarter, which at the time was the big 
new fancy Steffenfeld game. Well, big might be an overstatement, but there's a lot of Steffenfeld fans out there. So it was essentially the Merlin Kickstarter, and there was a buy Merlin and also get this game you've never heard of called Pioneers at the same time. And I think a lot of people went for that. In fact, that's actually how I got my copy. Ah. Uh, a friend of mine backed that Kickstarter and then he got Merlin and he ended up giving away Pioneers without even playing it. He just looked at the front cover. It's not very inspiring. Looked at the back. It just didn't do anything for him. And I took it off his hands and I ended up playing it and was instantly enamored with this game. I think that the theming of it does it a little bit of a, I don't know, disservice is maybe the wrong word. I don't mind the theme but it's not exciting and i think it's very easy when you see a game called pioneers to assume there's nothing really new going on there and i really think that this communal pond that you're moving around feels fresh to me because it's so rare and i love network building in games and i love the way the network is not only your movement system like making that super highway but also where a huge amount of your points are going to come from likely your game winning amount of points are going to come from that i just think that makes so much sense I played this one once and I instantly tried to get this played again. I played it several times now. And I just think it's a game that really deserved getting literally any amount of attention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it essentially got none. And it, very quickly, it was incredibly cheap to buy yep. at discounters because there's just a lot of games that come out and this one didn't catch people's eyes. So when it comes to the grading scale, I'm pretty sure I come in with out of five on this one as well. Mm, nice. Um, I don't think it quite gets to the sixth level, even though I think it's really lovely and it's definitely my wheelhouse for the decision space in a lot of ways i'm actually having a really hard time putting my finger on why i'm not going up to the six but you know i guess these kind of things are just <laughs> kind of a gut it's feel a feeling yeah yep all right cameron go ahead sure so i really enjoyed pioneers i felt like it was a fairly easy going game in the sense that turns are not complex and i felt like it was fairly easy to learn it was a bit of a fresh air for us like we talked about since lately, I feel like we've been into a lot more meteor games. I think that this is one of the things that this game does best. In my experience, route building games are either extremely complex and lengthy or they're ticket to ride. Mm. To me, Pioneers hits a sweet spot in the area of complexity. You not only have to manage your route building effectively and try to link everything up, but in order to maintain your funding and score points, apart from your routes, you have to figure out the puzzle of how to get guys off your wagons and make smart tactical decisions on which wagons to pick up and where to move the stagecoach based on the current state of the board. I really enjoyed thinking about all those factors and also enjoyed the fact that it was not as complex as my day job, like many railroad games can sometimes be. <laughs> so for me, I'm going to go with a four for Pioneers. I would definitely enjoy playing this one more. Awesome. Okay. All right, Chris, lay it on us. <laughs> so I'll start by saying I feel very conflicted about this game. And I feel conflicted because I do think this game has a lot of really interesting things going on. I do. And there are a lot of things about this game that I really did enjoy. But for me, as I mentioned in our con section, the one thing that holds this game back for me just a little bit are those conventions that I mentioned. And now you could argue that I'm wrong about that, and that's totally fine. But I do feel pretty strongly that at least for me, in the first third of the game, I kind of have a mental to-do list that I'm aiming at least to do. Because I just feel like they're the best moves, quote-unquote. Specifically, getting merchants and getting bankers, I think, early is strong. There are a couple of other moves that I think are also important, but those in particular, and I feel like the game incentivizes it. And if you're not able to do that easily, 
you can feel a little bit disappointed. And I'm not dinging it because I might feel disappointed. I just don't like games as much as other games when I feel like that I have a mental checklist that I'm trying to accomplish at the start of every game. Now, I will say, once the game gets going and you get past those few opening moves into the later half or the later two-thirds of the game, there's some very fascinating twisting and turning of knobs and dials where you're trying to decide what is the best move, and I think there are challenging decisions there. But as I mentioned, the conventions pull it back from a five for me to a four. I'm not giving this a negative review. I think this is a good game. I like the game a lot. Had it not been for those things, I could see this game being much better for me personally. But if you listen to the podcast for a while, you know I'm going to come in, sit down, look at the game, and as I evaluate the board, figure out what I'm going to do and not have preconceived notions about what I think I should do before I've even seen the board state. So all that to say, I think it's good. Okay? I think it's good. I'm giving it a four. Awesome. Way to work in a positive rating for a mostly negative review, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't mostly negative. <laughs> well, it's it's tough, right? Because I, I would say that you are not wrong in the slightest. I would say it's a feature, not a bug, kind of thing. Like right. you emphasized, it's a personal preference. I think everything you said is correct, and I like that about the game. And so that's just how yeah. these different personalities can yeah. see the same situation. Sure. I'm repeatedly reminded that yeah. that's the reason I'm a host on this show. It's because I have a different perspective, <laughs> Chris. <laughs> <laughs> It's really great to hear everybody was positive. It'd be kind of funny if I offered up some games and everybody hated it. We haven't talked about Square on Sale yet, so maybe things are going to shift hard. But, but uh, anyway, I'm glad everyone enjoyed this. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, if other folks out there have heard our takes on this and are interested in giving it a shot, Chris, where could they find it? Yeah, so definitely good news on this one. So copies are readily available, as John alluded to. This one flew under the radar, so you can definitely find it very easily at Noble Night. Our sponsors at Noble Knight have many copies available, so if you pick it up there, you can use our discount code 22GEMS, get 10% off your order. I should also mention that Noble Knight is running their 25th anniversary celebration sale right now, where pretty much everything in their entire inventory is 10 to 25% off through the month of September. So now is a good time to pick up some games. If you've been eyeing them on Noble Knight as well, we'd encourage you to do that. There are also 17 copies on BGG, reasonably priced. And this game is getting reprinted in 2023 as Future Energy. Interestingly, it's a part of a line of games they're calling the Green Planet line, which are all centered around this green, eco-friendly kind of theme, which is pretty neat. There's actually another game. I think it's on Game Found now by Durkin. I can't remember the name of it, but it's also in this. It's called Power Line. Power Line, yeah, which is also in this line of games. I don't think that's a reprint. I think that's a new design, but. That is a new yeah, design. Yeah. It's a series they're running, so pretty available. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, those are our thoughts on Pioneers. I almost forgot the name. Not power line. (laughs) Here squares are for sale. Pledge money to take control. Try to flip them all. Purchase squares with funds. In triangles might be best. End and end helps win. Was that a haiku? That was two haikus. (laughs) (laughs) Haikai? Haikais. It took me a minute to figure out what you were doing, because we don't talk about this beforehand, but yeah, that was well done. (laughs) 
<laughs> thank you, thank you. There was no flavor well, I'm pretty text. Pretty sure we know how to play game. the game now. There, yeah, there is I, none. I, well, I tried. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, as we often do when we have guests on the show, I'm going to kick this one over to John. He's going to give us the rundown here and lead us through the rules explanation. John, take it away. Yeah. So, Square on Sale. This game came out in 2005, so quite a while ago. And its ranking on Board Game Geek right now is 9,257. What? So way, <laughs> way, way up there. There are several publishers, but the main one that I recognize is Japan Brand. The designer of the game is Taiju Sawada, and I don't recognize any of their other titles. It looks like most of them came out 15 or so yep, years ago. Yep. Okay. So Square on Sale is effectively two games that are joined at the hip. The first game is essentially Othello, or Reversi, that you might have heard of before. On a very small board, you have a square grid that's a 5 by 5 and in this game, you're going to be putting tokens down onto these spots. And when you put a token down, if you can follow a orthogonal or diagonal line to another one of your tokens, you put more of your tokens down to fill that line in, essentially. So if you're able to have one on one side of the board and one on the other in a line, then you could put a whole bunch of tokens down with just one. And this game plays up to four players, unlike Othello. So instead of flipping things over, you just stack these tokens on top of others. So as the game goes on, there are just these stacks that are going to get higher and higher. And the goal of this game is to have the most points. And when the game is over, every stack is going to be worth points equal to its height for the person who has the top token. Mm -hmm. So if a stack has seven things on it, then the person who is at the very top gets seven points. There's no majorities or anything like that. So that's one game. <laughs> and that's a very simple game, obviously. There's this other game going on, though, where when it comes to actually putting these tokens down, you don't just put them down. Instead, there is a multi-round auction yes. for each one of the spots on the board. And this is where my head first turned when I first heard <laughs> about the game. So yeah, on your turn, there's a couple procedural things that you do. But the main thing that you're going to do is one action. And you can either start an auction on a place or you can outbid somebody else's auction. And there's, you know, a hundred different types of auctions out there. And a lot of people hear auctions and they run screaming. But the way this one works is it's really slow in a very peculiar way. When you start an auction, you put a certain amount of money down onto a spot, and then you put a token that shows two pips on it on top of those. Then at the start of a future turn, every one of those tokens on top of your money will get flipped over to the one. Mm -hmm. And only when it's your turn that it starts out as a one do you actually win that auction. So that's a long way of saying it takes two full rounds around the table at least for an auction to be won. So unlike a lot of auctions, it's not like, oh, we just start this auction right now and we all have to do it. It's kind of ongoing. So I might start an auction on my turn, and then Chris goes, and then Chris could start an auction. So now there's two auctions happening. And then maybe it's Jason's turn, and he decides instead of starting an auction, he outbids one of us. The way this works is he just has to put at least one more money down onto one of these auctions that's already ongoing. And when that happens, that pip marker that shows one or two, it stays where it's at. And then the other person who just got outbid gets all their money back. And this is huge because money is really tight in this game. Everyone has 20 money total, which might seem like a lot until you are participating in multiple auctions. And so essentially, when you win the auction and you remove that token after it goes around at least two times, that's when you put your token down and put more tokens down on all the ones in a line. And that's essentially mm -hmm. the game. There's also these little crystals that show up at the start of the game that give you extra points. Realistically, they just help kind of an expanded setup. Although there is actually one more very important rule, and that is that this is a five by five grid and the three by three in the middle well, those are the hardest places to keep. And at the start of every turn, you pull one money back from every one of those yeah. spots. That's because when you win an auction, the winner leaves their money on the board. Yeah. So if you win an auction with five, you only have 15 money left 
potentially total, or maybe even less if there's more money on the board. So the more auctions you win, the less funds you have to win future auctions. But you do get this trickle of income that comes in from those central spots. The trick is, from the outer spots, the edges that aren't the corners, you have to spend an entire turn, instead of bidding on an auction or starting one, to pull money back from those, and you only get one back from each. And finally, those corners, which are easily the most powerful spots on the board, you never get your money back. So once you win auctions on the corners, your ceiling for money goes down. And that's generally yeah. how you play Square on Sale. <laughs> and, essentially. Uh, it's, yeah, essentially. <laughs> and it has this feeling of, you know, oh, it's a simple Othello-like game. But then this two-round auction, I think, really is the first head turn mm-hmm. where you say, what is actually going on there? At least two rounds. Because again... If that pip starts at a two and it comes around to you and you flip over to a one and then somebody outbids you, suddenly they're winning and it stays at the one. And now it's in sudden death. The moment it goes all the way around without anybody bidding on it, it goes to that person. So as far as the topic is concerned, I think this twice around strangely slow auction is something worth talking about. And I want to know if you have any thoughts. Yeah. This is a very odd mechanism to wrap your brain around. And we've played a lot of auction games. Yes, we have. But it's basically simultaneous auctions that are all resolving at different times. And not only that, but these auctions are non-deterministic in a way. Because if someone snipes an auction and jumps in and overbids an existing auction, it prolongs the amount of time that that auction is on the board. Which can have huge ramifications for your plans. And for flipping. Right, exactly. That's what I mean, yeah. It's a little hard to conceptualize and explain, but you can only flip tokens if you have another token in that same row or diagonal to flip everything in between, right? But if the timing of some other auction gets thrown off and all of a sudden one of your tokens that you were counting on being there in order to create a line is now no longer there. Or just isn't there yet. Very painful. You're flipping nothing. Yes. Or isn't there yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. The mental gymnastics that goes into this game is fascinating. It's fascinating. Taking into account the board state and thinking, okay, if I can get that block to flip, I'll get all these blocks to flip in between it. But that's not enough in this game because you're thinking about it in the moment that you're currently looking at the board. But you have to be thinking, what is the board going to look like when all of these other auctions resolve? Will it flip the way that I want it to? And then to take it a step further. And will they resolve when I think they're going to resolve? And that's the other thing to take it a step further. You can control that to some extent because I might see, well, Jason's going to flip one of my blocks that I need to be not flipped so that I can flip blocks. But if I bid on that auction and extend the length and the life of that auction, my block will remain unflipped long enough for me to do what I want to do. Hard to explain. I hope that as a listener, you're kind of getting what we're saying. But man, it is mind-blowingly cool what you can do in this game with the auctions and the timing. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most difficult things I felt about this game is the necessity of tracking what other people can do and attempting to infer what they will do. What do I need to do in order to prevent you from stopping me? And do you even want to stop me at all? What is your goal and how is that going to potentially come into conflict with what I'm trying to do? It gets very deep in this game. I felt myself the entire time I was playing going, what's Chris trying to do? What does he want to do? Could he stop me? Does he even want to stop me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the fact that the auction goes twice around is really what makes the entire game because so much of this game is about what can I do now? Uh, on your mm-hmm. turn, you do a single thing. You outbid an auction or start an auction or take some money back from the board, which feels yeah. really bad. But I want to talk about that one yes, more for a little sure. bit later. But you only have this one thing, but you might say, okay, well, I can't lose that auction. But 
it's currently at the two level. So it can go all the way around and I can deal with that next mm-hmm. turn. So I'm going to do this other thing over here. But then there's a strong possibility it comes back around and suddenly there's two auctions that you can't lose and both of them are in sudden death. And then <laughs> maybe you're starting to regret things. Just because you can put something off doesn't necessarily mean that you should. But then there's this enormous flip side to outbidding people in mm-hmm. that you give them their money yeah. back. And money is so tight in this game. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting to try and track. But honestly, there becomes so many things that it's almost impossible to track. Every single time I've played this game, there's been at least one turn where an auction flips and somebody goes, what? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) They just totally missed it. And suddenly tokens are coming on the board and the plan just completely unravels. Usually multiple (laughs) times in a game. Usually multiple times, yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about the restricted economy because I think this is another incredibly interesting aspect to the game. You start the game with 20 money, which feels to me like a lot. The first couple of turns, 20 money, it just seems enormous. Sure, I'll bid five on that. Okay, I'll bid you with six. But from my personal perspective, just how I play, I do tend to overspend early and then suddenly realize that I'm super strapped and my money is out there. Maybe I've won too many auctions early and then I'm going to be short stacked for a while. There's this tempo of the money where, like I said, you start with lots and you start putting them down. But again, the board is essentially split into three zones. There's the three by three in the middle. Then there's the borders that are not corners. And then there's the corners. And the reason I specify this is because you automatically get money back from the middle. You have to spend a whole turn getting back from the sides and you never get money back from the corners. So I find this really interesting thing to just take in about the game is when the first person goes to an edge. Because suddenly that's money not really leaving the system, but becoming a lot slower. And then the first time somebody goes onto a corner is a definite turning point Mm -hmm. in the game. Because if you win an auction on the corner, literally that's it. That money is gone. And as you start to escalate towards the end of the game, you want to be riding that line correctly. You don't want to be too soon and you also don't want to be too late for making these transitions. Yeah, I think that timing element that you're talking about factors into something I was going to raise around the scoring mechanism too, right? Because you are scoring based on obviously owning these particular spots and these stacks at the end of the game, but you're also receiving negative points for every block that you haven't put out on the board Mm -hmm. by the end of the game. So you're constantly balancing this timing element of, well, I want to get lots of blocks out on the board early, which means I need to win auctions early, which means I need to put money on the board early. But if I'm doing that, then I'm potentially tying up all my money in order to be able to have a strength towards the end of the game. But conversely, if I'm holding back too much, then I'm going to end the game with 15 negative points because I haven't gotten enough blocks. Yeah. Out of See, and, I don't uh, think you're incentivized to hold back money in the beginning of the game. I think that it's actually kind of a smart strategy to not put too much on the board. You're trying to find that balance, but like you kind of need to go ahead at the beginning of the game and place some money on those inner squares yeah. so that you have an income later on in the game by the time it's time to place squares on the edge. Yeah, and those edge squares are so tantalizing and exciting because that's where the action happens with the flipping, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. if you want to get blocks out, like Jason said, every block you don't get out is a negative point. So you're feeling the pressure to get blocks out, right? Mostly not for negative points, but to be in a position to where you can potentially end the game, which is also mm-hmm. a position of power by not having a stockpile of blocks. So you feel pressure to place on the edge. Because you have longer axes, you can flip more. You've got more distance, right, between edges. Mm-hmm. But as John was saying, such a brilliant design choice here that if you place money out there, it takes you an action to get that back. And if you go on the edges, if you yeah. go, yeah, if you go too aggressive on the edges too early in winning auctions, 
sure you're getting a lot of blocks out early and then you're like where is all my money and then you're in huge yeah. trouble at that point right yeah so earlier on when i taught the rules i said that's generally how you play but i missed something really key and that's how the game ends and i, I want to explain that now and then Start talking yeah. about it, because I think this is going to be probably the biggest point of discussion for the game. You keep playing the game until every single one of the 25 spots has had at least one auction won there, or you keep playing until one person plays their 20th block. The game ends immediately, and then yes, you get the points for the sacks. As somebody mentioned, you also lose a point for every block you didn't put down, and then you get a couple bonus points for these gems you can get at the beginning of the game. But that's essentially what's going on. The game ends immediately. The immediately. The happens. <laughs> And I have to emphasize what, immediately. <laughs> immediately. And so what that means, and I'm going to throw out another question here because I, I want to see what you all have to say about this. I've been talking about this game like it's this victory point game. And I've been talking about this game like it's this economy game. And I've been talking about this game like it's an auction game. But it's really just a race to end the game in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I played this game four times. And three out of those four times, the person who won was the person who triggered the end of the game. And that's because since the game ends immediately, nobody else can counteract. Generally, when you end the game, you just put at least several blocks down. And those blocks went on top of stacks that are probably already relatively high. And that just puts you in a highly favorable position anyway to be the person to win it. And I want to hear what you have to say about that. Maybe it's a race to go out first. I'm so glad you brought this up. (laughs) (laughs) We had the same discussion. We had a heated discussion about this. Yeah. 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 We'll try it this time without all the swear words. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I tend to think in this game that it seems as though the person who gets the last giant flip is the person who's going to win, right? And all throughout the game, you know, it's flip-flopping back and forth, right? Bill throws out a whole bunch of blocks because he creates a triangle and then Cameron does it and then Chris does it and then I get some blocks out. Whoever gets that last flip is in a hugely advantageous position, right? Now, the debate over that is how much skill and planning and forethought and setting yourself up is involved in making sure that you are that person. Lots. And I think Chris and I disagree We need Chris to lose this game one time so that his opinion can mature. (laughs) Yeah, I don't disagree that you have ability to control that. You can influence how much money do I have at the end of the game. All of these things, right? And there is very little randomness. I mean, there's no randomness in this game aside from that input randomness of what other people are doing. But I don't know. There's something about it that makes me feel as though you don't have the same level of control because of the way the game scores and because of the fact that it ends immediately. It was definitely a point of contention in our plays that we discussed, but I'll let Chris (laughs) give his rebuttal. Well, yeah, so I disagree. (laughs) I think you made good points, but I do disagree. I think this game, like any good auction game, really revolves a lot around how smart you are about how you spend your money early in the game, right? Sure, whoever puts their final blocks down and ends the game is usually the winner. But I would strongly argue that that person put themselves in a position of power by how they manage their money and their auctions early in the game to be able to do that. It wasn't like that person lucked into that or that fell into their lap. They had the bidding power and the position on the board through planning to be able to control the way the game ended to their advantage. I believe that to be true. Now, I know some people don't, but I definitely believe that to be true. 
And you also just can't sit back in this game and just wait for the end because all along you have to be placing blocks out, which implies that you are winning auctions. But how much are you paying to win those auctions? Where are you winning those auctions? When are you choosing to go to the edges, right? All of these little subtle decisions are leading you to the end game to enable you to be in a position to win the game at the end. And so I think think it's skillful in that way, personally. I think this game definitely requires a significant amount of skill and, like you're saying, Chris, efficiency and not pressing the gas too hard too early. For sure. However, but but not being too passive, right? Right. And I'm with you on that. I think that your opinion tends to be framed is that it's all skill. And if you're smart enough and make wise enough decisions at the right times that you can win, no holds barred. No one can stop you. And I think that there are other elements in this game that need to be factored in. How many times do you get picked on? How many times do you spend a turn to place an auction and that auction doesn't result in you placing a tile, you get outbid. And so you have to spend another turn or let it go, right? There are things like that that are an ailment to the kind of efficiency of planning that you just can't control. Like if everyone else on the board wants your same spot that you tried to get, or if you are getting outbid on multiple fronts, those are the types of things that can impact any type of good planning and efficiency in your money that you could have devised. And we're not even talking about the fact that this game doesn't allow for an even number of turns. And maybe this isn't the right time to jump into that, but I found that to be an issue. My one answer to that would really quickly be, did you bid appropriately, right? Like in any auction game, sure, somebody can pick on me, quote unquote, come over top of me. But if I bid what I think is a right bid and then they overbid me, then in my opinion, they spent too much, right? And now they're out more money and I have more liquidity to do things. What do you think, John? John's very patiently waiting and I can tell he's got, he's got big (laughs) thoughts here. I want to hear. Let's hear it, John. (laughs) My opinion of all of this is definitely evolving. I played this game a couple of times a year ago and then I played it again just this last week to refresh things. So I've only played it three times. I am not an expert by any means, but I can't help but feel like this game is all about posturing for the last 10%. Mm. A lot of what Chris was saying. To the point where maybe even the extreme of the first 50% of the game almost not mattering. At least as far as winning. Like Chris said, you have to get these pieces down over the course of the game. If you wait the entire game, don't spend anything, you're not putting 20 of these blocks down. But in that last 10%, you could definitely put five down in one turn. So it's all about posturing, maybe not 10%, maybe posturing for the last 25% of the game. And I think how you navigate that is very interesting mentally for me, because I'm always wanting to put a bunch of these things down. I definitely want to win auctions, et cetera, et cetera. I want to grab those little bonus points that realistically don't really mean much at the very beginning of the game. But a big thing I have to keep reminding myself is none of the auctions that you win in the early game matter at all, except for lowering your total. Especially in those middle areas, there's going to be three, four, seven, eight, nine <laughs> tokens yeah. on there. You're not defending them throughout the mm-hmm. whole game. So there's this definite perception thing. To tell a, a little bit of a story from the game we played last week, it was a three-player game, and I bid way too much early on in the game to grab all those little victory points. There's these victory points, so like three, four, five points. But the swings of this game, one turn to the next, you could be down 20 or 30 yep. points. So I don't really know why I focus on them, but I do. And so we're like four or five rounds in, and I've spent most of my money, and I'm kicking myself. <laughs> and for the entire middle third of the game, 
I was short stacked and somebody else had tons of money. They kept winning all these auctions. I had barely any of my tokens out there. I kept kind of trickling them out a little bit. But I remember halfway through that game, you know, right in the middle of that slog where I was super short stacked, I'd made all these mistakes. I decided I'm going to stop being defensive. I'm just going to go on the offense. I don't care about anything that has happened now. I'm just going to start spraying this board <laughs> with tiny auctions. And every single turn, I would start an auction here for a dollar. Next turn, start an auction there for a dollar. Next turn, start an auction over there That's for a dollar. Not outbidding anything because I realized I was short stacked. I didn't have money to compete. So why bother competing? It's very easy to get that sunk cost fallacy and to throw good money after bad when you're in these kind of situations. And in this one story, I mean, it's one anecdote, but when we've reached that kind of 75% mark, suddenly I had the most money and my opponents had gone pretty hard on the corners and I had touched the corners and my ceiling was 20 and they were down like seven, eight money. And suddenly for the last 25% of the game, I had more money than all of them. And that was a really interesting thing to see. I was able to kind of fight mm-hmm, out of it. Yeah. But that being said, I was doing this kind of, I, I called it guerrilla warfare. I was just like <laughs> throwing auctions all over the place, even ones into the corners. Cause like if I went in the corner for one money, I'm super happy. But if you have to spend your turn defending that, then I'm also kind of happy because right now I'm in a low power position. But I started doing this. And then one of my opponents also started doing it, <laughs> the other short stack person. And what ended up happening, coming back to the picking on thing, I know I'm kind of going to a bunch of points people have said, all of my little guerrilla warfare bids got outbid. I didn't win anything for one. But one of my opponents who was doing this as well, one of her snuck through. Mm. The single $1 bid, she was able to put three tokens down. And that ended up, swinging the entire game but interestingly enough in that game it was the third person who ended up winning an auction out of his control because we just kind of let the timer go and he didn't end up winning actually it wasn't even particularly close i was actually really happy to have this one data point where the last person the person to end the game did not actually win it and i feel like we kind of came back to the picking on thing and the checking on people And, and we were discussing it after the game and we think that one single money auction that she was able to sneak through while the rest of us were fighting fires here and fighting fires over there allowed her to get that position. And I, I don't know, I, I, that was a lot of thoughts. I'm not really sure if I got cohesive there, <laughs> no, but I, um, I think it's sure fascinating. I, I, th- I definitely think you're onto something with the idea that it's not always worth it to defend your ground, particularly yeah. early in the game. And that, I have to admit, is a lesson that I learned far too late in my plays of this game. I think it's a great point. Yeah. Oftentimes it's almost like a trap. Like mm-hmm. you might outbid them and then you realize that's exactly and what you they wanted have, to have happen. You could have spent your turn <laughs> expanding into new territory yeah. that other players didn't think you cared about. Mm-hmm. Final thoughts time. All right. yeah. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think so. so. All right. So we've been talking for a while. Let's move into final thoughts. Cameron, why don't you start us off? <laughs> All right. I have to say, I really, I want to like this game. I think that it is an incredibly interesting concept. It might be too sort of exclusively strategic for me. I really like being able to pivot in a game and play tactically. And I guess following our conversation, maybe there's more pivoting and tactics than I initially realized. I'm nervous that there might be a dominant strategy that everyone is sort of working toward. And it's the sort of thing that like, if you don't do that better than other people, you will not lose by a little bit. You will lose by a lot. You will get crushed. There are no close matches of this game like we've been talking about. If you lose, you lose big time. And so the question that always arises when I have this type of experience in a game is, was it still fun? And I have to say yes, but sort of in the way that Minesweeper is fun. I'm not going to win. 
I might enjoy some like gains in like the early and the middle of the game, <laughs> but not in up. the end. All right, in the end, a huge frowny face is going to be on the screen, and I'm going to be questioning myself whether or not I actually want to start over. I you get to that one random decision that you have to make. This space <laughs> yeah. or that space. So I struggled with a number for this game. And since I really do think that it has so many merits that I, I feel like I have to give it a higher number than maybe my feelings want to. And honestly, I'm going off script at this point because we had a great discussion. And when we talk about a game and the conversation makes me want to play it again and try something different than I played in my previous plays, like I was going to give this game a three and break the rules of what a three means because like that whole, I think it's merits are better than my feelings about it sort of a thing. I can't give this game a two. It's not a bad game. I think I'm going to give it a four because I do have that feeling of, I want to play it more. I will say that all of my plays of this game were abysmal and gut wrenching <laughs> and painful and it wasn't fun. And I went home a little bit upset. <laughs> and so it's hard to give a game of four when it makes me feel that way. <laughs> we come up against games like this sometimes, right? Like I do this with three kingdoms redux. Hmm. It is a gut wrenching game and it's so freaking hard and I get pummeled repeatedly but its merits are so good. It's so strong of a game that I have to give it a higher rating, right? So I'm gonna give this one a four, even though I didn't have fun playing it. And it was a mind bending game and I felt terrible about myself after playing it. You're totally selling this camera. <laughs> but man, it's a solid game and it's well designed and I gotta give it credit where credit is due. So that's my review. Nice. <laughs> all right so i don't think it's any secret that i like this game a lot i think this game is pretty amazing to be quite honest auctions check tension check agonizing decisions check right seeing the board flip into your advantage in that reversey style where you've done the mental calculations and the mental gymnastics and controlled to a certain extent the timing of auctions to make things flip to your favor is fun and fascinating to me. This game is so close to a 6 for me. This game is like a 5.99 and I'm not <laughs> rounding up. I'm going to give it a 5. But you know, I think a rating when we rate games as reviewers, it encompasses a lot of things, right? And I think it's not just my personal enjoyment of the game, but it's the feeling that you get after you complete the game at the table, right? And this is not an accusation against anybody in the review or at the table, but you have those games that you pull off your shelf and you're like, oh, you have to play this. This game is so great. You should try this. You're going to love it. This is not one of those games, <laughs> even though I love <laughs> this game, because this game can hurt your feelings real bad. Okay, yeah. this game, it's a roller coaster. Oh man, I mean, like Cameron said, you can go to I'm winning to I am dead last in a heartbeat in this game. To me, I don't see that as a problem. You know, we often talk about swinging this in games and it's almost always used as a pejorative, right? Like it's bad. This game is swingy. This game is swingy, but it's not bad. I still am of the opinion that you can control that swinginess based on how you play early, setting yourself up to make that critical move at the end to win. And so for me, it's a high, high five. You just got to know your audience. You got to know who you're playing with because some people could hate this game, right? And you just have to, based on what we've said, get a sense if you think it would go over well or not. So that's it for me. 5.99. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh boy. All right. How to follow this up. Shouldn't be any surprise to anybody listening to this podcast for a while that I love auction games. We all kind of love auction games on this show. This game is no exception. It is a fascinating auction game. One of the more interesting auction games I think I've ever played, just because of the timing elements and the income dynamics that are going on in different areas of the board. We've had a discussion about control and the swinginess and how we feel about that. I'm not going to come out and say I feel like this game is random from a swinginess perspective, right? I do agree with some of your points, Chris, that I do think you have the ability to control your fate in this game. But to your point that you just made, right, I do question if that pulls back from the enjoyment of the game a little bit. Yes, it feels super satisfying to drop that block in and just wipe everybody out of the game because you just swung it completely in your favor. But I do think it pulls just a little bit back from that overall enjoyment aspect of the game. And I do side a little bit with Cameron in terms of I think there are certain circumstances in the game where it's just out of your control. Yes, you can plan for that event happening that's out of your control and you can set yourself up to be able to do something about it. But if that happens in the last round of the game, you're not going to do anything about it because you don't even get a turn to do anything about it, even if you're sitting on a ton of cash. So I think it can leave... A bitter taste in some people's mouths, right? All that said, the fascinating elements of this game still make it a good game to me and one that I would want to continue to play. So I landed on a four for this one. Definitely an interesting auction game. I would want to continue to play it, but some of those other things that I mentioned just prevented it from being higher than that for me. That makes sense. So I have a lot of conflicting feelings about this game. (laughs) Honestly, going into today, I was thinking, what am I going to rate for this? I was thinking probably four-ish, but it's one of those games, and I think one of you mentioned this earlier as well, where when it's on my mind and when I'm thinking about it, the more I think about it, the more my esteem grows for it. Because from a design perspective, I think it is nothing short of brilliant. Mm -hmm. The way these different systems work together is absolutely fascinating from just appreciating a piece of art. And honestly, that's one thing I frequently said to people about this game. I'm not actually sure how much fun it is, (laughs) but I feel like I'm looking at a Mona Lisa or something like that as far as game design as something I can respect from the deepest recesses of my brain. I have had fun playing this game. Don't get me wrong there. But just like everyone has said, it can be polarizing. It could definitely leave a bad taste in the mouth. I've only played a handful of times. I won one of them by a blowout and I would have lost dead last if the game had gone one more turn. And I've been on the flip side of that as well. And I think if this game was two hours long, it would be a problem. That wouldn't be something I would ever want to try. But the fact that it takes, in my experience, 45 to 60 minutes means it can kind of live in that look at this I can't believe this exists kind of space. So this is a game that I don't own. I've played all of my plays of this online. And every time I have played this one, I've had this feeling of like, I should really get this game. And then later on, I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, I don't know. It's so polarizing. Some people aren't really going to like it, et cetera, et cetera. So then I kind of back away from it. And I've been having this kind of ebb and flow over the last year, every time this game comes up. And I think where I start to land on it is this is a game that I want to play once with everyone I like to play games with. So that means there could be like 10 or 15 more plays (laughs) of this thing in here because I think what I enjoy the most about this game is watching my opponents play it for the first Mm -hmm. time and have them realize what 
an insane thing this is. And also what a subtle and disingenuous kind of camouflage thing this is. It comes across as like, win these spots, get a bunch of points. That's how you win. And then you actually realize, no, it's a game all about posturing. It's a game all about trying to go out last. Again, there's always an exception. I played a game where the person who went out last didn't win it. But still, it still had that kind of feeling to it. And I want to see the faces of my friends as they play this game the first time and, you know, maybe play it more. So it's really interesting because I think this has got to be a five Mm -hmm. based off of your system for the sake of exploring it with other people and seeing them wrap their heads around it. I think I'm going to be looking for (laughs) it because, you know, I, I have a lot of people that I play games with who don't play games online and I want to introduce this to them. And honestly, that last play, the one that I played just a week ago to get my brain wrapped around this game again. My esteem went up even more as I realized, you know, it didn't end up winning the game, but honestly, I feel like I kind of lost that game, not taking money that one turn. I kind of realized that like, okay, you know, you're losing. Okay, you're on the defense. Okay, you're in trouble. Switch things up. Try something else. I just realized that there's more in here than there potentially might otherwise be. And yeah, I personally don't think there's enormous amounts of control to being the person who goes out last. I think this is the kind of game that you can set yourself up to get lucky and have that opportunity to maybe be that. Like, you know, lucky people generally are people who are careful, positioned careful there, to be able to capitalize <laughs> on that luck. Hey, disagree. Uh, I, you, <laughs> might be step, you might be stepping on Chris's toes. No, no. Chris is brilliant. You don't understand. Chris right. is brilliant and nothing that he ever does to win is luck. John, okay? you are not ever invited <laughs> back. Luck when it comes to Chris. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but, but by luck, I, I, of course, there's no randomness in this game. I just mean, you know, the, the decisions that your opponents make. You might have this plan and then your opponent does something that you did not expect <laughs> coming and that could completely completely upend sure. things and then you have to just jostle around and i think chris only wins through and... pure skill that's right so, yeah so yeah. what yeah. you need is i want to point for, out is... i want to point out that i'm not saying this okay i i would never what you need is for <laughs> bill and jason to start whacking each other in the middle of the game and you just go over here and do your own yeah, thing and no one's messing with you <laughs> <laughs> so that's a, a really long way of saying that i think this is a game that i want everybody who's deep down the board game rabbit hole this is not something you introduce to new casual oh gosh, players no. but yeah. like people who who are really into board games and really appreciate them and want to know what's the newest, hottest thing that's coming out. I think they got to play this game from 2005 to see this wacky harebrained thing. Mm -hmm. And it it totally works. It might not work in a way that ends up being super fun for said person, but yeah, it's, you know, at this point, I'm just going to start repeating myself. You want to play this game with your friends that you know really well, who won't be personally offended (laughs) when you (laughs) just crush them into the ground. And even still, they might be. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, that's where I land with this one. It's like a 5.0 for me. I'm like the opposite of Chris. I'm not a 5.9. It just barely Got made it. it up into that threshold. Yeah, it's a masterpiece that needs to be appreciated. By yeah, me. and I think that's the key thing in that people just need to experience it just to be like, wow, somebody thought of this. I think that's yeah. one of the coolest things about it is just the brilliance of the design, whether you enjoy it or not. Just appreciating how freaking clever this design is just really is mind blowing yeah. to me. Well, once again, everybody gave fours or better, so, so I'm feeling good. pretty good. I'm two for two. Yeah. <laughs> Just barely, I think. <laughs> All right. Well, where can folks find Square on Sale? Folks Not like John. easily. <laughs> so, Where's yeah. John going to get his copy? Unfortunately, this game is really hard to find, which is, I think, why it's so lowly rated on BGG. I mean, in the 9,000s, that's insane. Yeah. That is insane. And I'm just convinced <laughs> it's because not a lot of people have played it. And that's because it's hard to yeah. find. There is one copy on BGG that's $95. There are no copies on Noble Knight. There are really no copies anywhere with one exception. And this is how I got mine. 
I got mine at Amazon.jp. So yep. from Japan, I think with shipping, which wasn't cheap, but with shipping, it was around $45 to $50, which doesn't sound bad. But if you were to look at this game, it looks like a prototype. Okay. So you're not paying for this big box game with lots of bits and colorful chits and wooden pieces. Well, you're getting wooden pieces, but oh, uh, you gotta give a little more credit than that. I thought this game actually looked pretty. Really? Cool. I mean, it's got a, like a fabric board, for and like big chunky it's wooden like pieces, square blocks. There's, there's screen All that printed. to say, if you're really <laughs> struggling with finding it, just draw some squares on a marker board. <laughs> you could make this and game. get some random bits and bobs. Yeah, but Amazon.jp. It's not unreasonable. Let's just put it that way. And let me yeah. say also, I'm thrilled that I have it and every dollar was worth it, in my opinion. Perfect. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us on Hidden Gems. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah. We would love to play games with you sometime if we could figure out how to work yes. out this coast and other coast thing. <laughs> uh, but uh, man, just a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks a lot. Really awesome, John. No thank problem. you. Yeah. Thanks for being here, man. All right, and we didn't we'll say th 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 we didn't oh, say those are our thoughts on. Uh, oh, do it! Oh, John, you should do it. Okay, and uh, those are all of our thoughts on Square Perfect. Sale. All right, well, thank you for joining us for this episode of Hidden Gems with YouTube gaming sensation John <laughs> of John Gets Games. <laughs> If you like what we're doing here, please remember it's a huge help to us if you'd leave us a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on our various social media platforms. Those simple things can make a difference for this show's exposure so more folks can enjoy exploring games with us. Check out the BGG Guild if you want to interact with us or share a game that you think is a hidden gem. And if you're so inclined, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash hidden gems podcast or purchasing a hidden gems t-shirt on our website at hidden gems board game podcast.com slash store. Until next time, I'm your host, Cameron. This is Chris. Jason. And I'm John. Thanks for listening. This episode of Hidden Gems number 39 was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina on September 12, 2022. Well, it's time once again to get our Dr. Kinesia fix. Join us again in two weeks. That's right, we're returning to our normal schedule this fall as we review yet another three games, including two Spiel de Jahres nominees by prolific board game designer Reiner Kinesia. Hidden Gems is produced and edited by Chris Alley, Cameron Lockie, and Jason Yanchlow. Our Board Game Geek Guild is monitored and managed by honorary Hidden Gems team member, Ghidorah. Our show's logo was illustrated by designer and artist, Caitlin Nieto. Check out her work on Instagram at It's Caitlin Nieto. We would love to hear from you. Feel free to join the discussion on our many social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook at Hidden Gems Board Game Podcast, Instagram at Hidden Gems Podcast, and Twitter at Hidden Gems Board. Disagree with one of our reviews? Have something you want to say about one of the games we discussed today? You can also make your voice heard on our Board Game Geek Guild at BoardGameGeek.com, guild number 3874. Once again, thank you for joining us on Hidden Gems, and until next time, fellow gem seekers, enjoy your games and enjoy your search. As we review yet another three games, including including two Spiel de Jars, when, <laughs> including two Spiel de Spiel de Jars, oh, Spiel de Jars. I don't want to pronounce Yaris. it wrong. Okay.
including two Spiel de Jahres Spiel. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> including two Spiel de Jahres win. You had it. Nominees, not winners. 